distro hopping, the idea that Linux is fun and the myriad of ways people put distros together should be reviewed often. My name is Moss. I live in eastern Tennessee. My name is Tony. I live in the northwest of England. And I am Dale. I live in northeast Ohio. Welcome to Distro Hoppers Digest. We love checking distros out, new distros, new versions of older distros, and even some we may have overlooked. We each have our preferences in complexity, or desktop, or package management. Perhaps we can help you find a new distro, or better understand one which has piqued your curiosity. The idea of this podcast is that we will each install a new distro to our chosen hardware for three or four weeks and use it as much as possible, perhaps even as our daily driver. We record all our trials and tribulations, fixes, what we liked and what we didn't. Tony and I prefer to look at distros which would be kind to a new user, especially one who is hoping to move over from another operating system, such as Windows or Mac OS. While I tend to take on the more advanced distros and give them a go. We intend to give as much information as possible on each distro, and we will also divulge what hardware we are using and how we think the hardware may have affected the rating. Welcome to Distro Hopper's Digest, episode 23, recorded on June 9th, 2021. This episode, we're taking on FreeBSD 13 release and Manjaro XFCE. We are happy to receive suggestions of distros you'd like us to try. Monthly foibles, wherein we discuss what we did this month. I've been trying to get by. It's been gotten difficult enough to do that. I've resigned from Mintcast. I've been recording Full Circle Weekly News for over a month now. And this podcast and that one shouldn't be too much for me to do. My mother's estate is nearly settled now that her house is pending sale. I spent as many days as I could as a substitute teacher in local schools, but the school term has ended. So I have time on my hands at least until school starts up again on August 4th. And I finally got physical therapy reordered for my still damaged shoulder. What's going on with you, Dale? I started working on some software that will become a subject of an upcoming article on It's Moss. I attended the Linux Lugcast podcast on May 7th. It was pretty fun to hang out with some fellow Linux users. I had an eye exam and confirmed the suspicions that my eyes' close-up vision had changed. So I'll be getting what they call blended lenses, also referred to as bifocals. I needed to submit my receipts to my company's HR department. I will speak on more on this later in the beautiful failure section. Let's just say after spending two hours trying to get Linux to work with my printer's document scanner, I needed to use my Windows 10 VM. That meant I had to wait an hour to uh, let the updates install, as I haven't used it for a year or so. It's really the only point I haven't. Once updated, I scanned the receipts and emailed them. How about you, Tony? So like you, Dale, uh, I recently had a two-yearly eye check. I've not been driving because I uh, feared that my eyes had deteriorated so that I was no longer legal uh, with the current prescription I had. But the optician uh, reassured me that despite a slight change, I was well within the legal requirements for driving, but I'm still getting blur in it in my left eye due to uh, a developing cataract, which uh, makes driving difficult at times. So I'm limiting me driving to local area and only when I have to. So Linux-wise, 
A couple of episodes ago on Mintcast, they were discussing what constitutes a distro. I missed that episode. But as a result, we ended up looking at Swift Linux, which, among other flavours, has the Hannah Montana and Taylor Swift spins. All their spins are based on MX Linux, which I reviewed back in October 2019 on this podcast. But as far as I can see, the only difference between the spins is a different wallpaper. And they all have all the different wallpapers in each of the spins as well. So you could change it from within whichever one you've loaded. They may add something to MX, uh, although all the repositories are MX ones. And there's nothing on their website that talks about any additions. It just talks about updates and things. So I'm not convinced that they do anything to the actual bare MX uh, install other than the wallpapers. I don't think we've reviewed MX since uh, uh, XSCE finally came up with a reasonable desktop. Uh, it, their big change a couple a year ago has really improved things. Yeah, it might be worth doing another one. Mm. Like I say, it was October 2019 when I reviewed it. So, yeah, might be worth doing again. So, uh, like yourself, Moss, life and other commitments are taking over as we come out of lockdown here in the UK although some restrictions are still in place, but we can now travel within uh, the UK for holidays and stuff. This has limited my ability to be a full reviewer for the show, so I'm mainly involved in post-production side of things, as you guys know, uh, of the podcast, but I'm still on Minkcast if anyone wants to get older. So shall we move on to updates? Updates, where we discuss what we've learned about distros we've already reviewed. Bodhi 6 is finally final. I'm so excited. I've been using this distro since pre-release alpha and had it continuously installed and updated since beta. It's even more beautiful, has a few new tricks up its sleeve. I was hoping to review it, but I seem to have gotten myself added to the distro's team, and that could constitute a conflict of interest. Primary changes include a GIF default wallpaper, Thunar File Manager, Mint Updater, and a lot to work on Moksha. There is a 32-bit version still in the works and a version featuring the full E24 desktop. Open Mandriva has worked out the kinks in the rolling release, numbered 4.5 nickel. The best way to get it is to install 4.1, go to the forum, and follow the instructions you find there, which state you're upgrading from 4.1 rock to 4.2 rolling. I made the mistake of attempting to upgrade from 4.2 rock instead of 4.1, and it caused some interesting issues, but they've all been ironed out, and I now have a fully functioning rolling release of Open Mandriva on my Zia 800 workstation. I have been unable to install OM4 on my Kudu, however. Has anything caught your attention about the distros you've reviewed for us, Dale? Well, most of them have been pretty quiet. Blue Star Linux has a new release, but they have no changelog or any update information, so I have no idea. Garuda replaced the Plasma Edition that I reviewed in episode 19. It is called Dragonized. It's uh, written in Leet-speak, so I'm... Assuming that's how it's pronounced, I've heard it pronounced that, so I'm just going to go with that. One of my favorite distros, Solus release Budgie 10.5.3, was support for the new GNOME 40. It uses libraries from uh, GNOME 40. And they also had some other bug fixes. They have updated their GNOME edition to GNOME 40. 
Their Plasma Edition was updated to 5.21.4 with KDE Framework 5.81.0. They also started an account with Open Collective, another community funding site like Patreon. So if you ever wanted to donate to Solus, here's your chance. So now we will move on to Beautiful Failures. Beautiful failures, what we tried and failed to install or run this month. I managed to get Solid K installed. I had to go back to the July release and then update both it and the repos as they had moved to a new server. Then when I got it just about working right, my workspaces were ghosting behind the rest of the panel. They worked sometimes if I squinted just right. The distro does look nicer in blues, but Plasma is still not my friend. I moved along. I remembered that I'd done pretty well with the Community Edition of Manjaro Cinnamon a year ago, and Dylan suggested it had been a while since we reviewed Manjaro, so I installed Manjaro Cinnamon and booted to a black screen. I tried Manjaro Mate being a Mate fan and couldn't even boot. I gave up and tried Manjaro XSCE, and that will constitute my review later this episode. I learned about Bliss OS on Monday and just couldn't help myself. Bliss OS is something like Gallium OS and Chromium OS. It installed on the Inspiron and claims to have written Grub, but did not boot. Repeated attempts failed. Then attempts to install other OSs failed. Finally, I just gave up and put Mint 20.1 Mate on it, and all is good. Dale? As I mentioned in my activities for the past month, my failure is courtesy of HP's Linux Imaging and Printing Software. It's also abbreviated as HPLIP, and to a lesser extent, CUPS. My HP LaserJet, which has a horribly long name, the LaserJet 100 Color MFP M175 is supported in version 3.11.7. The current version, however, is 3.21.4, and PopOS has 3.20.3 available. Oddly, HP claims this printer only has USB support, despite the fact that the printer came with USB, Wi-Fi, and Ethernet support as default options. Even so, all the features the printer had were supported. You're doing better than me with uh, HP. I've got the uh, HP Lib stuff installed, but my HP Color Laser just will not work in Linux. I have to I have to have a uh, Windows install to get it working. Oh, really? So not even in cups without HPLIP installed? Nope. It won't work. It, it says it's there. It recognizes it's there. You press print and nothing happens. Hmm. <laughs> I know. It's crazy. Yeah, it's pretty much echoes what I'm about to describe here in my, uh, my beautiful failure because I'd never had this many problems with any HP printer to this until I had this one. So I don't know. Maybe <laughs> you know. Maybe their maybe their support is a little waning. Yeah. I will point out that my brother printer has a tendency to report having three or four different installations of the printer, and uh, when I try to print to it, I have to figure out which one is going to actually work, and it's a different one on different times. I've seen that before with, I can't remember what I had before my HP. I'm thinking it was an Epson or an, or what's the other popular brand, Canon. Yeah, I've seen that before. Oh, well, we'll let you get on. Yeah, so in all the distros I have used in past, present, Cups was installed. 
Cuptured see my printer and install it via the network. I tried using Sane with Cups a few years ago and gave up. Sane is the document scanning package in Linux. So I created a Windows 10 VM and installed the HP imaging software from the Microsoft Store. I'm a pragmatist and just wanted to get the task done, really. Fast forward to last month, I noticed that Sane with Cups still doesn't see my printer, uh, the document scanner. After some searching, I remembered I'd tried HP LIP before. I searched and I didn't see it in the Pop Shop, which is Pop OS's app store, the software repository. So I installed it with apt. sudo apt install HP LIP. I also installed the uh, package hplip-gui for a desktop graphical interface. Just like with Manjaro before, hplip didn't recognize Pop! OS as a distro. This is doubly as strange, considering it's based on Ubuntu, and it actually uses some Ubuntu repos in addition to the ones that uh, System76 created for Pop! OS. The setup asked if it was a local connection, or a network connection. I chose network. It then proceeded to scan my network, and the resulting screen showed my printer properly identified. The next screen asked if I wanted to do a test print and adjust the uh, default options. I tried to do a test print, and it failed with an obscure error. I opened Cups in Firefox and saw the new printer entry. I couldn't print from there either, but I could from the uh, one that Cups installed initially when I installed Pop! OS. Well, I tried modifying the uh, cups entry to see if HP LIP would use it, and it didn't work. HP complained that the driver wasn't created by HP LIP and instructed me to delete it and use its setup application. To add insult to injury, I also couldn't print using cups anymore. Yeah, I broke it. <laughs> Which pretty much uh, disabled Pop! OS is uh, print engine from uh, doing it because apparently it shares some of the uh, configuration. So I deleted all the printers, uninstalled the HP LIP package, and rebooted. Upon reboot, my printer was redetected and I was able to print once again. Sans the uh, scanning. I'm puzzled. HP claims my printer is only supported by USB, but their software detected it on my network. So... One of my tasks this week is I'm going to uh, install that on my Pangolin laptop and take it out to the family room where the uh, printer is sitting and see if it'll see it with that. So let's move ahead and get Moss's review of Manjaro. Okay, Manjaro XFCE 2021.01. I had a bit of trouble finding a version that would install on the Dell Inspiron 7353, but finally went with XFCE. This has been a good experience, and it's an easy entry into Archland. My Dell features a 6th Gen i5 and Intel graphics, 8GB of RAM, and a 128GB SSD. Installation ease and issues. The distro uses a renamed Calamaris installer, with an extra section allowing more flexibility in swap partitions or files. As is usual with Calamaris, it seems nothing can go wrong. Answer a few questions, wait the usual length of time, and you have an installed distro. Post-installation hardware facts and issues. This is the first time I tried Manjaro as a sole boot. I had no issues other than ones I'll talk about later in this review. Ease of use. 
You have to learn how to use PAMAC or Pac-Man and access the AUR for some programs and apps. This is a learning curve for many users, but in the end you'll find everything you use, and if you do get regular updates, it will be the latest version of everything. Like all Arch distros, you need to keep it updated. I got all my games installed, although the latest version of K-Mines has a bug in the score-saving feature. Memory and disk use. At rest, NeoFetch reports 587 megabytes of RAM in use. The disk usage is 9 megabytes. Everything runs smoothly and as expected. Ease of finding help. This is not my first rodeo with Manjaro or similar Arch distros, so I haven't needed any help. Most help a new user would need would be to get it installed and running. After you learn sudo pacman and how to use package managers, you probably don't need much help unless you leave the system alone a long time without updating it. But the Arch wiki is always there, and there are lots of users should you need to talk to somebody. But should you yum? There seems to be a difference of opinion on using the yum package management, which has not been updated recently. Plays nice with others. With effort it can. The distro is known to only boot from its own partition, although it will kindly allow other distros to boot from its boot partition. If you want another distro controlling grub, you will need to do sudo grub update to get grub back, and then use your BIOS key to boot to Manjaro. F12 on Dell, F7 on System76, Escape F1 or F2 on other systems. Stability. I haven't experienced any stability issues. Arch has a reputation of updating poorly if you let the updates go for too long, but I never do. Similar distros to check out, Endeavor OS, Mint XFCE. Looks like I breezed right through this. Ease of installation. New user 9 of 10, experience user 10 of 10. Hardware issues 7 of 10. Ease of finding help, community and web, 8 of 10. Ease of use, 9 out of 10. Plays nice with others, 5 out of 10. Stability, 8 out of 10, and my overall rating is an 8. Before you go to your final comments, Moss, do you use the AUR instead of YUM? Yeah, uh, you can get to it from PAMAC. Yeah, so you can, you can run the same commands and, and use PAMAC to control the AUR as well. Right. Yum is a lot easier to use, but uh, I'm seeing more and more comments online that it hasn't been updated lately and is becoming uh, decrepit, so to speak. Mm. Yeah, w- uh, when I've run Endeavor, I've, I will always use Pac-Man and uh, the AUR. Mm-hmm. I'll let you get one. Okay. Final comments. This distro does everything I need it to do with all the packages I need and regular updates. It's usually near the bleeding edge in terms of what packages it uses and is preferred by many gamers as well as being fully usable on the Pinebook Pro and Pinephone. If you want a less steep learning curve, stick with Mint, but if you can take the intro work, this is every bit as good a distro as you can find. I have one friend who complains it's too easy in hand-holding. He uses Endeavor OS. I feel like I haven't said enough about this distro, but there's not much to say. You load it, it works. As long as you understand it has to work in a certain way, like if you're booting into the Manjaro boot, you're fine. If you're booting into another boot, you have to go to the BIOS boot menu to get in. Yeah, I was watching a video review uh, on YouTube the the other day uh, from a guy called the Old Tech Bloke, and he was uh, he was talking about Arch distributions, uh, and he was he was including things like Manjaro and Endeavor and stuff like that, and he was say, saying you no longer have to have the pain of uh, doing a complete 
by hand install of Arch. You know, Manjiro and Endeavor and quite a few other distros make it a lot easier. Right. Well, like I said, if if I had if I could find it that did anything better or considerably different from Mint, I might be using Manjaro. It does everything that I can do in Mint. I think the main the main benefit is uh, the more cutting edge software that you get access to because of um, it being a rolling distro. True, but I don't have a cutting edge machine. <laughs> <laughs> Enough said. I think the best experience installing Arch has to be um, Garuda. Hmm. That's if you really want Arch. That's one <laughs> point of view. <laughs> right. Well, let's move on to Dale's review on FreeBSD 13. Since FreeBSD 13 was released recently, it was good timing for a review. I've been meaning to do this review for a while. Let me start out with the development process naming convention. As you notice, it was called FreeBSD 13-release. The dash current is the development version which creates the dash stable version. The dash stable version is what becomes the dash release version. The dash release as the name imply, is the release version. They have been releasing a new version about every 18 to 24 months. This is subject to change due to unforeseen circumstances, development issues, whatever. From version 11 on, they have been adjusting the dates. FreeBSD 1.0 was released in November of 1993. It was based on 4.3 BSD Net Release 2. In short, it was referred to as Net2, and 386 BSD. FreeBSD 2.0 was released in November of 1994 and was based on 4.4 BSD Lite Release 1 and 2, which additionally was referred to as Lite 1, Lite 2. More on these later. FreeBSD's roots date back to research Unix from the early 1970s which was created by Bell Labs, an R&D division of AT&T. I want to share some history on FreeBSD and BSD. Keep in mind this is highly abbreviated since there is a lot of history. Also note that due to the 50 or so years of history, there are some conflicting dates for some events. So I don't have the dates for everything because it was really debatable which date to use. BSD was named after the University of California, Berkeley. The full name is Berkeley Software Distribution, a group at Berkeley called Computer Systems Research Group, or for short, CSRG, created BSD in 1974. Unix was licensed and was very expensive if you weren't affiliated with a university. In the late 1980s, they wanted to begin removing the AT&T code. By July of 91, CSRG released an open source version of BSD. It was free of the AT&T source code and called it 4.3 BSD Net2. Two Berkeley alumni, William and Lynn Jullitz, over a period of three years ported 4.3 BSD to the Intel 8386 CPU, which required them to write code replacing the removed 
AT&T code themselves. And the removed code was the ones that the CSRG removed. The ported code was called BSD386. They completed the project sometime in 89, though I've seen dates listed as 91. BSD386 has a big following since it was the first Unix-like OS that could run on an Intel 8386. There is some controversy over why FreeBSD was created. The easiest way to explain it centers around development disagreements over BSD386. A group of BSD386 users branched the code and continued developing it. They named it FreeBSD. Other members of the CSRG created a company called Berkeley Software Design Incorporated in 1991. Their part of BSD to the Intel 8386 to use the Net2 source code created by CSRG, and they named it BSD slash forward slash 386. It was eventually renamed BSD slash OS once the 486 and the Pentium CPUs were released. They thought that the uh, 386 name made it sound dated, which I agree. They decided to license their code with the intent to offer licenses that were less expensive compared to those of AT&T. In 1993, two developers of FreeBSD, Jordan Hubbard and David Greenman, contacted Walnut Creek CD-ROM about distributing FreeBSD. Walnut Creek was well known for distributing software via CD-ROM disk, either by mail or their FTP server and they eventually hired Jordan and David to continue their work on FreeBSD, as well as operate the computer servers. I personally bought many CDs from them and used their FTP server quite a bit back then. I think if my memory serves me correctly, it was one of the software distribution points for Slackware. They had a large selection of free and open source software. If you ever wondered why IX Systems, the creator of FreeNAS, which is now called TrueNAS, centered their business around FreeBSD, here is a short history, though an incomplete history. In 2000, BSDI merged with Walnut Creek, which had already acquired Telenet Systems Solutions, a company which made servers. A year later, they sold Walnut Creek to Wind River Systems, which was the software company. Wind River then spun off what was Walnut Creek into FreeBSD Mall. BSDI renamed themselves the IX system and continued to sell servers and other storage systems. In 2002, a web hosting company called Off My Server acquired IX systems. They donated hardware to various BSD projects and renamed themselves to IX systems in 2005. A year later, they acquired PC. BSD, and in 2007, they reacquired the FreeBSD mall. Well, that's enough history. Let's move on to the distro. My hardware, the laptop I use is my Lenovo ThinkPad T460, which is my retired daily driver. It has an Intel Ducor i5-6200U, 2.8GHz CPU, 14-inch display using the Intel HD Graphics 520, 16GB of RAM, and a 500GB SSD. Installation Ease and Issues Oddly for me, I didn't use DD to write my USB stick. But instead, I selected Popsicle. Popsicle is the USB image writer that PopOS uses by default. It is very simple to use. I downloaded the DVD ISO, which included the uh, package archive. There are also other ISOs available. 
including everything to minimal, depending on how big you want to download. The uh, minimal is going to require you to have an internet access since all it does is just boot the installation from the USB stick. They also support 64-bit and 32-bit Intel and AMD CPUs. They also support ARM, PowerPC, which is the old Macs, and RISC CPUs, which were the old uh, Unix workstations back in the uh, 80s and 90s. Once the download was done, it was time to boot the FreeBSD installer. I did notice a long delay during boot up. It stopped on RTSX0 colon controller timeout for CMD55. It repeated that many times and then changed it to CMD1 and did that a few more times. After waiting several minutes, it continued to boot. I thought that was odd, so I went to search for this message, and one of the search results was exactly the message, which is always good. It was found on bugs.freebsd.org, their website where you can report any issues with uh, FreeBSD. It's uh, mostly bug fixes. It's not like, how do I do this type of thing? More of uh, letting them know something's broken. I found out it was the SD card reader on my T460. The laptop came with a micro SD to SD card adapter. Nothing was plugged into the adapter, but the adapter was itself plugged into the laptop slot. The issue is that the driver identified the card reader, but it didn't know how to interpret nothing being installed into the micro SD card adapter. The solution was to remove the adapter card while you're booting. Sure enough, upon reboot, boot process flew by, stopping at the uh, screen for the uh, FreeBSD installer. I did read through the comment thread. Other people that had responded said that they submitted a patch to the devs, so hopefully it'll be included in a uh, future release. This was a month ago, so we'll wait to uh, see about that. After booting up, I was at the welcome screen, where it does a 10-second countdown before the uh, installer loads, and I found out this is actually part of the regular boot process, too, once after you install. I pressed enter to stop the countdown. From this menu, I had various boot options, like special kernel or video console settings. The latter is for connecting via a serial port from other computers. I noticed that they are still using the Encursus style screen, similar to what is used in other distros I've reviewed like Debian and Void Linux. If you are a new listener, this is a terminal-based graphical keyboard interface that is interactive. You navigate using the arrow keys and using the inner key to make your selection. Given the choices of install, shell, or live CD, I chose install. The shell option is for doing any pre-installation activities. I don't know what you would do in the shell but you or what changes you would want to make, but you have that option. Just in case you try the shell option, you can exit and return to the installer by typing the word exit. If you try the live CD option, don't be surprised when it drops you to a login screen with nothing there. FreeBSD does not install a GUI by default. To log in, you just type root, press enter, there's no password. From there, you're in what you would call a terminal session in Linux. And you can look around the file system using cd and the ls commands. They are very similar to the ones used in, in Linux. If you want to reboot the computer, you can just type the word reboot and press enter. There were the common questions that every installation asks you, like your keyboard settings and the host name, 
etc., which is the name of your computer. I saw the choice of optional system components to install, like ports, tree, and source tree. The ports are uh, source code that you can download and compile. And the uh, source tree is the uh, kernel source, which you can compile your own uh, custom kernel. I left it all out to default. In the partitioning section, I was shown the choice of auto ZFS, auto UFS, manual, or shell. Manual allows customized partition options. Auto is the guided mode and uh, for using the UFS or the uh, ZFS file system. And the shell is if you really want to be hardcore and partition everything by hand. UFS is the standard file system among the BSDs. It's similar to the EXT file system found in Linux. And ZFS is a file system that can do system file snapshots and software rate options. You can also do snapshots of uh, other volumes you create as well. The default is ZFS. I noticed that if you place the cursor over an option, the description will be shown at the bottom of the screen on the left. They recommend at least 8 gigs of RAM recommended for using ZFS. I chose the auto ZFS. Even in auto mode, you still have some freedom to make some decisions like changing the drive pool name, swap size, encrypting the swap, encrypting your drives, among others. Just for fun, I chose swimming for my pool name. Yes. That was a dad joke, and yes, I am old enough to make dad jokes. <laughs> Have to get my practice in. After making my selections, I pressed enter to continue. The following screen has the ZFS settings. Since I only had one drive on my laptop, the only viable option was Stripe. If you had more than one drive, you have the other options of mirror, mirror and striping, single, double, or triple redundant uh, RAID setups. You can relate these to RAID levels 1, 10, 5, and 6. Finally, I was able to select which drive to install on. I moved the cursor over to the drive and pressed the spacebar, then the enter key to continue. As you've already heard, there's a lot of keyboard input. If you don't like using the keyboard, you are either very annoyed by this point or have quit before now. I confirmed which disk I wanted to use. Pretty simple considering I only had one. I want to point out that if you're used to the Linux uh, system, you'll notice that the drives are not named SDA1, SDA2, etc. Instead, FreeBSD uses ADA0 for the first SSD, and your USB stick will show up as DA0. Now that my drive was selected, I could choose the password for the root user. After that, I was able to configure my network interface. There was a question about my country, which you may think is odd. But I can explain. The default was USA. There are 14 channels available for Wi-Fi depending on the country. Uh, in the United States, we have 11. It then scanned for my access point and entered my passphrase when it connected. I was given the option of using DHCP or static IP. Additionally, there are some other options for IPv4, IPv6, and some custom DNS settings. The clock settings were next, and they were pretty much the same as other Linux distros. You choose if you want to use universal timekeeping. I guess it's universal coordinated time, but it's abbreviated UTC. Or you can use your local time settings. If you had previously had Linux on the computer, it'll most likely be using UTC already. If you're using Windows, most likely it's going to be using your local time. I chose to load the default services. 
There are also some security hardening options. You can leave these unselected unless you know what they are. You can read about them in the uh, FreeBSD handbook. Oddly, Nexo is creating my user. Usually that is done before or after you create the root user. After all that, I applied my settings and the installation was finished. You're able to make some changes to your previous selections if you want. After exiting the installer, I rebooted the laptop. All right. Post install and hardware facts and issues. After a couple of updates the uh, past few weeks, the problem detected the empty microSD card adapter is still happening. Leaving it ejected allows the laptop to boot up without delaying. Otherwise, I didn't have any hardware issues. Ease of use. I booted to the login shell. Since FreeBSD does not have a pre-configured X server, window manager, or desktop environment, I logged in as root as the defaults in FreeBSD does not allow a regular user to use SU. Once I added my user to the wheel group, I was able to use SU. And the next thing I did was install PKG, which is called Package, which is the package manager. It is not installed by default because FreeBSD has two ways of installing software. One is through ports. They are the source files that you can download, edit, and compile. The other option is to use package to install pre-compiled packages, just like you would do in Linux using apt. You can use both if you really wanted to. I typed package and it was installed. PKG uses this similar syntax if you're familiar with apt. For example, using pkg install package name will update the package database and install in one command, which is kind of, I guess, using apt is a bad comparison because you have to do apt update and apt upgrade. But in any case, that's how it works. From there, I installed Joe, which is my favorite text editor. The VI editor is installed by default. I'm really not a fan. Another thing I did was edit the .cshrc file for both root and my user. The .cshrc is the config file for the C shell, and I needed to edit it so that I could change the default editor from VI to Joe. And by the way, you can install Bash if, if you wanted to. It's just C and TSCH are original Unix shells. Any program in the terminal that you need to open an editor will follow this directive. I can tolerate VI for quick edits, but I often need to do quite a bit of editing setting this up. I also installed sudo and configured it. Before going any further, I wanted to see if there are any updates. I typed freebsd-update space fetch. There were no updates, but if there had been, I would then need to type in freebsd-update space install. You also use this command with different switches to upgrade to new releases. I also ran package upgrade to check for package updates. I wasn't expecting any this soon after FreeBSD 13 being released, you know, so soon. I logged out and logged in as my uh, user because I was doing all that as a root. sudo and su were used for any root level requirements. If there was a lot of editing, I would just use su. That saved me from having to type in my password every time I would type sudo. Oh, one thing I want to point out, the handbook assumes you are the root user, so if you're not signed in as root, you will need to use su or add sudo in front of all the commands that they have listed. I decided I would install 
XORG with XFCE 4.16. Wayland is available, but it's not officially supported yet. I used the FreeBSD handbook from their website, which I have a link in the uh, show notes. I installed all the required packages for XORG, XFCE, LightDM, and the Intel graphics driver using instructions found in Chapter 5 called the X Window System. Then I edited the required config files. I tried using the default display manager, XDM, but I had some odd issues with not being able to reboot or shut down from within XFCE. I had to open the terminal and type the commands to shut down or reboot. So that is why I ended up using LightDM, which is a nice GTK display manager that is usually used with GTK-based desktop environments or window managers. I also chose it because it has fewer dependencies compared to GDM, which is the GNOME display manager. All that was left was to add some packages for XFCE, like the Pulse Audio volume applet, Network Monitor, WPA Supplicant GUI, etc. That's for connecting to Wi-Fi access points in the GUI. Once I was using XFCE, everything worked pretty much as it does in Linux. The only difference is you don't receive any notifications of updates. I just opened the terminal and typed in the commands, which is pretty much what I do in, in Linux, really. The Linux Ulator was one feature I wanted to check out, but the amount of configuration was more than I wanted to do. Linux Ulator is an emulation layer that allows Linux binaries to run on FreeBSD. The steps needed to configure this started out fine. Just load some services, edit some config files, mount some required directories. Then it got a little time-consuming. You need to mark the Linux binary with a program so FreeBSD knows it's a Linux executable. Then you need to put all the dependencies in the directories that you previously mounted. They are used to recreate the uh, file system directories that uh, Linux programs expect to see. I checked a couple on my computer and found that many of them have dozens upon dozens of dependencies, and I wasn't about to copy all of that, especially when there really is no guarantee that that program is going to work. Linux Ulator is a work in progress, and they have a website which shows what works and what doesn't. I was able to browse my Samba shares and access the files on my network. Samba works the same as it does in Linux. The versions of the packages were pretty much the same on Linux as well, but in some cases they were newer. It all depends on the distribution you're using. For example, Pop! OS 2004 has uh, Firefox 89, and so does FreeBSD 13. LibreOffice is at 6.4.7.2 on Pop! OS 2004, but it is at version 7.1.3.2 on FreeBSD 13. Memory and disk usage. FreeBSD uses just about 605 megabytes of RAM on fresh boot and has about 4 gigabytes of uh, space on the SSD upon login. Ease of finding help. The FreeBSD handbook and FAQ were very helpful. This takes you step-by-step step from installation to post-installation configuration. They even have a chapter explaining basic commands and functionality. If you need more help, their forums are a great place to ask questions. However, I do want to caution that the members expect that you have read the aforementioned handbook and FAQ before asking your question. They are friendly and helpful from what I've seen in my browsing. 
I also found some independent blogs in my searching, which were quite helpful. Just make sure that they are referencing and referring to FreeBSD 10, or newer, because a lot of architectural changes in that happened since the uh, version 10 was released, which affected subsequent versions 11, 12, 13, etc. Plays nice with others. I didn't try it, but I did read It Is Possible. I personally think that unless you really need to have both for development reasons, you're either going to run Linux or you're going to run FreeBSD, as they are both usable choices once they are configured. Stability. FreeBSD is just as stable as Debian, and I'm pretty sure the uh, opposite would be true too, depending on what side of the, of the camp you're on. It is used by many companies like Netflix, Cisco, Juniper, The Weather Channel, etc. It is often used in embedded devices like in-car multimedia systems, game consoles like the Sony PlayStation, and industrial control systems. OSs based on FreeBSD are currently being used on Mars, and I think SpaceX uses it in addition to Linux. FreeBSD in some cases uses the same open source projects that Linux uses. Though there are some changes for compatibility. And don't forget, FreeBSD was the base for macOS. Yes. You know, I completely <laughs> glossed over that. Yes, you, you are correct, Tony. Um, the very brief history on that from my research, because you know I like doing research on history on these because it really is fascinating with the, all the operating systems. Um, when Steve Jobs, depending on who you want to believe, was forced out of Apple or quit, um, he created NextStep, which is a computer company, and he, he needed an operating system to use. So he used, and this is going off the top of my memory, so I may be wrong, but I'm believing he used either the BSD 4.2 or the BSD 4.3, one of the those releases that I previously mentioned. And he also used some code from, I think it was version 1 or version 2 of... Uh, or three, like I said, I can't remember, a FreeBSD, to make uh, macOS. So that's why you'll see a lot of uh, developers for Mac use uh, FreeBSD on their laptops, mostly because, as they say, Macs are expensive for for the uh, same hardware you can get in a uh, Intel, which is no longer the case now, seeing that Apple has ditched uh, Intel. So you really can't say that now, but they're still expensive, <laughs> in my opinion. Even even for my budget, that is way too expensive. So, some similar distros to check out. Midnight BSD and Ghost BSD. They have very friendly installers. If I'm not mistaken, I believe Ghost uses Calamaris or a installer that uh, other Linux distributions will use. And they come pre-configured, so you're not going to have to go editing config files and stuff unless you want to change something. My ratings. Ease of installation for a new user. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to keep it real. I'm just going to say three. I could say something higher than that, but I just have to be real. I think it's the historic reality of your rebooting, and you basically see a prompt that says your computer name and a login prompt. That pretty much, you're not really into it. You're not going to go any further. I bet you a new user is not even going to log in or... If they do, they're going to go, okay, where is it? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, they would have to be extremely motivated to go past that point. <laughs> yes. I'm not going to say – I'm not discouraging anybody listening. 
go ahead and try it. I mean, you really learn a lot of stuff about this, but you have to be dedicated. You have to have the interest and the, I guess you could say the love of doing this, or at least the experience of trying it once, you know. Crazy people like us, you know. <laughs> yeah, because, yeah, I mean, it was not hard. I mean, I try. I ran open BSD for a side business for hosting websites and that back in the late 90s. And I hadn't really used any of them since then. I think I tried FreeBSD 9 10 years ago just to try it out. But yeah, this is the first I've used FreeBSD for any length of time, for a long time. So an experienced user is going to be 7 out of 10. Uh, hardware issues, 9 out of 10. I took a point off this because of that SD card issue. Ease of finding help for the uh, community and web, it's 10 out of 10. Ease of use, 8 out of 10. Plays nice with others. Didn't try it. Stability, 10 out of 10. And mathematically, it's the uh, 8 out of 10. So my final comments. I wanted to make a brief mention about that rating. Even though mathematically it is 8, this distro is by no means something a typical new user would install. It is not impossible, like I said, but you really need to have the desire to do this. So moving along to my final comments. Other than using different commands in the terminal, slightly different directory structure, and system configuration, FreeBSD functions as if you were using Linux. If somebody would walk up to you and look over your shoulder, they wouldn't be able to tell the difference. If you're not used to starting from a clean install with only the terminal available, there is quite a bit of installation configuration needing to be done to have a functioning working system. It is similar to the amount of effort needed after you install Arch or Void Linux. The benefit is you end up with a customized installation that has exactly what you want and nothing that you don't want. After going through the process of configuring everything, you really begin to appreciate the effort the maintainers do to provide a functioning OS for us all to use, FreeBSD and Linux withstanding. This is obviously not for everyone. If you have ever tried Arch, Void, or even Gen2, then you're probably going to like the experience of installing FreeBSD. In my opinion, it's no harder to install than installing Void, and it is much easier than installing Arch. So let's move on to let Moss announce the new releases. Okay, new releases since last episode from May 4th to June 9th. Gparted Live 1.3.0-1, Dragonfly BSD 6.0.0, GUIX System 1.3.0, Bodhi Link 6.0.064 bit, Parthead Magic 2021 underline 05 underline 12, Nomad BSD 130R-202105088, Xtix 21.5, T2SDE 21.5, Gecko Linux 999210517.0, that's the rolling version. NetBSD 9.2, Robo Linux 12.05, Red Hat Enterprise Linux 8.4, LACA 3.0, OSGO Live 14.0, AntiX 19.4, AV Linux 2021.05.22, BlueStar 5.12.6, Univention 5.0-0, Alma Linux OS 8.4, Oracle 8.4, VZ Linux 8.3, 
KDE Neon 2021.0527, Nitrox 2021.05.28, Raspberry Pi OS 2021-05-28, Alt 9.1 Simply, 4M Linux 36.1, Maclu Linux Core 2021-05-28, Jing OS 0.9, ARM and 8664, Clonezilla 2.7.2-38, Tails 4.19, Kali 2021.2, OVOS 3.11, OpenSUSE 15.3, NixOS 21.05, Septor 2021.3, Arch Linux 2021.06.01, RescueZilla 2.2, CentOS 8.4.2105, Laka 3.1, OpenMamba 2021.0605, LiveRazo 12.21.06.06, CloudReady 89.4.44, PacOS 2021.05.22, Gecko Linux 153.210608, that's the not-rolling version. Salient 21.06, Makulu Linux 2021.0607, Venom 2.1, Manjaro 21.0.6, Maybox 21.06, Absolute 2021.0608, Fogolta 6.9-2021-0609, and Redcore 2101. Feedback, no emails this time, so moving right along. Announcements. Our next episode will probably be recorded around July 14th, depending largely on Dale's schedule. For chatting with us further, you may choose to join our 22 users in Telegram, our 53 members on MeWe, or the four users on our new channel in Discord. We are no longer using the Mintcast Discord channel. So, where can our listeners find you, Dale? I'm at Dale underscore CDL on Telegram, Matrix, and Discord. You need to add number 9433. And my email is dale underscore cdl at pm dot me. Tony, where can we find you? Yeah, you can hear me nearly every two weeks on Mintcast and contact me at distrohoppersdigest at gmail.com. Uh, I'm on Hacker Public Radio, host ID 338. And I'm on Twitter at H1212 and th at mintcast.org. Tony, we hear you every week. You only record it every two weeks. Yeah, but it's the show is every two well, weeks. Well, but we release it. They they release it every week. I no longer we. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, we don't release an MP3 every week. Oh, well, you're talking about the split show. Sorry. Yeah, they split the. Okay. Anyhow, and you can hear me every week on Full Circle Weekly News. You can reach me as at Zyvala on Telegram. Email me at zyvalananda at protonmail.ch and find me on Mastodon as at Zyvala at hosttux.social, plus my various blogs and music sites, and with Dale and Dylan at itsmoss.com. We would like to thank the Mintcast crew for the use of their mumble room. My work here on Full Circle Weekly News and itsmoss.com can be supported by joining my sponsors or by direct donation through sponsors or PayPal, Zyvalananda at protonmail.ch, Thanks to supporter Firecat and helpers SK Beans, Linux Level 114, and John in Glasgow. 
I am very grateful for all donations which have been or will be received. Before we go, we would like to thank all those who have made this project possible, starting with the Minkcast crew for allowing us to use their Mumble server and Discord group. Archive.org for storing and helping to distribute this program. Audacity, which we use to record and edit the show. Joshua Lowe for work on our logo. All those who work on the teams which are creating, adapting, and maintaining the Linux distros we have reviewed this episode. Midair Machine, creators of the song Streets of Santivo, used as our music under Creative Commons license. Thanks to Linus Torvalds for the kernel, Richard Stolman for the GNU toolkit, and all those who have worked hard behind the scenes on free and open source Libre software. We shall be back next month. Thank all of you for listening. <laughs>